The following episode of the 9pm edict contains disturbing ideas, like freedom, and democracy, but no strong language. This is wrong. Sunday the 28th of October 2018. My guest today on the 9pm probe is American attorney and author Mike Godwin. He invented Godwin's Law. He invented the term internet meme. He thinks about things. We caught up at the Hilton Washington Hotel where John Hinckley Jr. shot President Ronald Reagan and we spoke about the nature of democracy. The nature of democracies is that they rely on the idea of limits to what government can do. About the nature of humanity. The fact is that we are on Earth for a limited amount of time. And what Australians should do about my health record. Just opt out. You know, you can opt in later, but you need to opt out now before November 15th. Hello, I'm Still Garion, and this conversation with Mike Godwin was recorded on Friday the 5th of October 2018. Mike Godwin, we're going to have to start with that question. Uh, we can get we, can we get that out of the way first? Sure. Uh, I have this intuition that you're going to ask me about Godwin's law. That's fine. Godwin's Law, uh, which you can Google for and which has a Wikipedia entry, is uh, a a verbal meme that I came up with about uh, 20, 30, no, 20, I forget how many years ago. It's 27 years, 28 years ago, could be a little more now, it's coming on 30 years. I I created Godwin's Law uh, because, uh, and I'll tell you what it is in a minute, but I I created Godwin's Law because I noticed in online discussions in the very early days of pre-internet online discussions, people kept comparing each other to Hitler or to Nazis when they got mad enough. And so I created Godwin's Law, which says, uh, as an online discussion continues, the probability of a comparison to Hitler or to Nazis approaches one. Uh, and and there I, I tried to make something sound scientific. Of course, it's it's not scientific. It's not falsifiable. But I I wanted to say uh, sort of communicate subtly to people who were communicating, talking, and dissing each other online that when they were uh, uh, escalating the rhetoric to comparing people to Hitler or to Nazis, they were acting predictably like a rock falling down a hill. That they were you know, not even acting as if they had free will. It was inevitable because I knew that uh, human beings uh, are what they are, and they would say, I'm not predictable. I refuse to. (laughs) I refuse to follow the normal pattern and compare people to Hitler or to Nazis because that would just make me uh, be another instance of Godwin's law. And it worked a little bit for a while. (laughs) It's it's been, um, I will say, uh, you you may get, annoyed by this too that it's been misinterpreted as this kind of as soon as you do compare anyone to nazis or fascism that you have lost your argument and i I don't think that was your intent was it no that was a a mutation you know sometimes you have when you have mimetic uh, engineering you have a mutation uh, on the internet and not every mutation is a you know positive from a from a health standpoint but certainly some people have said godwin's law means that if you bring up hitler or nazis it's the end of the discussion but you know it could just be the beginning of the discussion especially if your comparison is thoughtful and grounded in history uh, and i uh, wholly disavow anybody's invocation of godwin's law to to uh, shut up someone who wants to compare, for example, President Trump to a fascist or, or make any other uh, deleterious comparison. That's, 
that's fine. There's no rule against it, and Godwin's law doesn't prohibit it either. You uh, are on record, in fact, of... uh Again, allowing this usage in uh, discussions of Australia's uh, not exactly generous immigration policy, uh, because we do, in fact, run concentration camps by any reasonable definition of the words. And people that say, oh, it's not that. I said, no, 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 I'm not saying death camps. Right. But so, they are concentration so, camps. Of course they're concentration camps. I think that uh, any a- external uh, uh, developed country would say, oh, yes, they're concentrating the people they don't want in a camp. That is a concentration camp. And that's what concentration camps originally meant. That's what the term originally meant. Uh, and uh, it's still inhumane. It's still uh, uh, rotten to do, especially when you're dealing with immigrant populations who may not have had control of their destiny to get to where they are. You know, so so I think that, you know, one of the challenges for developed democracies and Australia is certainly one. Uh, is to say, how can we take our best principles, our most humane principles, and implement them when we're dealing with issues like immigration? And Australia could do better. Certainly the United States, my country, could do better. Canada seems to be doing pretty well, and I I am very impressed by uh, the Canadian approach to uh, immigration. And, uh, you know, the fact is we can't uh, let ourselves turn populations of people into pawns or objects of hatred. That's a bad decision. We seem to be doing a lot of that around the world, though, at the moment. Uh, before we started recording, we, we discussed many things over lunch, including the uh, the rise of nationalism around the world. Uh, while we're staying on our theme of fascism, and I will get away from this eventually, trust me. Yeah, they keep promising me they're going to get away from it when they talk to me, but, but I, I, I'm, I don't expect, my ho- hopes are not that high. Uh, anyway, thank go you. ahead. Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty low-quality podcast, so, so again, you should not expect uh, very high standards whatsoever. Sure. Uh, but we are seeing this rise of nationalism. You are someone who has spent most of your life talking about freedom and privacy and the politics thereof. Right. How does it look from where you sit? So I think no one really disputes that there's been a rise not merely of uh, nationalism. I think we've had nationalism with us to various degrees for my entire life, but a rise of a kind of a a populist, uh, uh, xenophobic or isolationist uh, uh, nationalism or nationalism that, you know, flouts uh, uh, what had been growing international conventions about things like human rights and also even commercial issues like trade. Uh, And and I understand a lot of why there's a lot of pushback on different pieces of this. I'm not trying to say that everyone who's a nationalist is necessarily, you know, driven by inhumane impulses. But the fact is... um, we, you, you know, we're we're all on one planet, and we're, you know, we're all in this together. You know, we can't sort of ignore the fact that there's a world full of other nations and other peoples out there. And even if we believe that there are values in our own countries that we want to uh, preserve, and even if there's a character of democracy that we want to preserve, we want to make sure that we are not doing so at the expense of helping the world and being part of the world solving global problems. So, so that's how I think about it. I'm not what you would call a globalist. I'm not sort of a... Rant. Well, that's become code word now, <laughs> No, it's, it, of course too. it's a code word. It's a code word... Uh, 
But I do think, you know, we, you know, it's not like we're on a different planet here in the United States. It's not like, I mean, sometimes if you fly to Australia, it seems like it must be a different planet because it's so far from here. But we're, uh, but really, we're all on the same planet. And we have to recognize that we have a lot of interests in common. Uh, I worked on internet freedom and internet free speech and privacy issues for decades now. And one of the things I've found, and I've gotten to travel all over the world and talk to people all over the world about this, is that the hunger for freedom of speech, the hunger for autonomy, the hunger to use these digital tools to make life better is everywhere. It's not just in the developed world. It's not just in developing countries. I found it in, in, in South Sudan. I found it in other places that are really not developed at all. The fact is people want to be connected and they all want to be part of the process of bringing of making this uh this century that we're in a good one and not a bad one there are some people who are saying privacy in particular on the internet is is declining um i'm not going to do one of those silly things about you know young people don't care about privacy because anyone who's had teenage children i think i haven't but i know damn well that teenage children value their privacy very highly especially from their parents and that's part of growing up maybe but- only from their parents <laughs> sometimes it's that sometimes i don't care what anyone else knows it's my parents that i don't want to know well that's but- true too but that's that's a little off topic uh, sure it, it, we we are seeing an erosion of privacy rights i think sure so the deal so people a lot of people don't remember this but when i was first working on internet uh, and, and and computer freedom and privacy when i was first working on this issue there was a lot of concern uh, about the internet because and i'm not making this up people believe that the internet enabled you to be anonymous in destructive ways and they thought that you know the thing that we really had to worry about with internet communications was anonymous speakers uh, and and all I could think of and I knew enough about the technology of, 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 of internet communications to know this was that Every time you log on, you're leaving a record with, you know, leaving different kinds of records with your service provider. Uh, There are IP numbers being recorded all over the place. Even if you think you're merely anonymous, there's a lot of stuff that's recorded about you. And it's sort of reflexively recorded about you. Uh, And so the issue is not so much whether you have no history. The issue is whether you're generating your history all the time. And I think people are beginning to realize now that you really are generating a a history of your life all the time. So much so, and one of the reasons, by the way, that the Australian government, uh, like the American government, has focused on things like cracking into iPhones, is that if anybody had access to my iPhone, iPhone, they may know more, that person may know more about me than I know about myself. Uh, You know, my iPhone has a whole lot of records about me that I have not reviewed, uh, you know, and that I, you know, has a wet, not just a web history, but a lot of apps that I use. It has it has a a ton of stuff about me. And so uh, uh, getting access to, you know, we want to make iPhones secure against criminals. But the fact is, it's very hard to make digital security work against crime that doesn't also hinder the very most well-meaning law enforcement agencies from getting access to your phone. I think we ought to be able to learn to live with that. I think that it's a mistake to think that law enforcement and and our our national security agencies uh, ought to just have a right to trump everything because of the crisis du jour. 
We don't seem to have that conversation, do we? We hear the, the law enforcement saying, okay, we have this problem and that a thing we used to be able to do, we can no longer do. Uh, we don't hear all of the ways in which technology makes their job easier. And, and in fact, in fact, it's absolutely true that anybody with a social media history has left a lot of clues about anything they're doing, uh, you know, that, are, that is largely publicly available. Uh, and uh, when I say publicly available, I mean it's not normally required, at least in the United States, to have to, re- to get a search warrant to look at somebody's public social media history. Well, it's uh, public. That's it's the, public, of yeah, course. That's... It's public, and so we have that, and that's uh, I, and that's uh, uh, something that uh, uh, every police agency in the developed world, every police agency in the developing world, and certainly uh, every police agency in unfree countries is perfectly willing uh, to take advantage of. Now, there's a recognition, uh, and we see it, I think, driven uh, partly by uh, regulators in the European Union uh, at, the, at the EU level to say we need more digital privacy. And I think that impulse, generally speaking, is, is a good impulse. Uh, but one of the ironies here is that, you know, the EU regulators will typically look at a country like the United States and say, the reason you have these successful Internet platforms is that you're the Wild West. You know, you don't really have the strong protections of privacy that we have here in the sainted European Union, uh, to which I point out, you know, that really your law enforcement agencies and your intelligence agencies have way more access to your communications and telephone records than, uh, than mine do. <laughs> this, is, this is true. Um, it's something that, that I know, and Australia certainly doesn't have this, this, this idea that the government could turn evil or could be evil or do evil things, even if they're not all evil, they're just small acts of evil, if I can put it that way. Uh, now, it's not as you know, Madeleine Albright put it when she spoke to the conference I was at the other day when she says, you know, people don't trust the United Nations because, you know, it has Black Hawk helicopters that swoop down at night to steal your lawn furniture. Um, but there is a healthy pushback against government efforts. Well, I, I, think, the, I think the difficulty here uh, is, that, uh, when, is that governments uh, always have a kind of a tropism, like flowers turn toward the sun. They have a tropism in the direction of uh, expanding their authority to capture your information and to surveil you. Always, uh, you know, it's always articulated in terms of the best possible reasons. And honestly, in 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 the democracies, uh, people really believe that. And I, I have talked I talked to a lot of people who work for intelligence agencies and a lot of people who work for law enforcement agencies and, and, and they're not lying they're really they really want to do good uh, but uh, that said the fact is that if you don't institutionalize uh, digital privacy protection strongly then you have not protected yourself for what happens when a, a government can go bad and one of the things that I think we see a lot of evidence of around the world is that democracies are inherently fragile uh, and so you have to build your institutions and protections, not because you think democracies are going to lead to the best people being in charge, but because you know that sometimes democracies are going to lead to rotten people being in charge, and you have to protect yourselves from, from government in those eras, too. And I'm tempted to say we, we see that in a number of countries right now. 
Well, I, you know, I... Not, I, not to, you know, choose anyone in particular that we might be sitting in today. Well, I'm happy to be... I'm happy to express unhappiness with, uh, with things that are happening in the United States. I think that in particular... And I'll just pick one issue that's not really at the top of the news. I think uh, the United States uh, Department of State has done, a lot, has done a lot of good work around the world and has been, you know, the United States has been a, a, a responsible partner uh, uh, in, in promoting, uh, uh, you know, international uh, uh, comedy and peace. It hasn't, it certainly has uh, sinned as well. There's no question about that. But the State Department, uh, ha, you know, had a, uh, has essentially been decimated uh, under the current administration. And it's been damaged so badly that even after, let's say that President uh, Trump leaves office in, uh, in, uh, uh, 20, uh, 2017. It's entirely possible he'll leave office in 2017. I mean, in, uh, pardon me, in uh, 2027. I, well, I'm getting the year wrong, 2026. That's right. May I forget what year, what year mm. the next presidential election is because I'm trying to ignore it. Um, I know people in Australia will feel some sympathy for that impulse. Um, but uh, I, I think that when the president, when President Trump, if President Trump leaves office after two terms, uh, uh, it doesn't matter who comes in after that. It could be it could be the most competent president in the world, and nevertheless, the State Department will will have decades, or maybe a generation, before it can be rebuilt to what it was before. This is part of America turning inward from the world, isn't it? I, I, I think that's right. So one of the things you, uh, I think that we have a lot of documentation of is that the United States has always had a, a strong isolationist street. And uh, it informed a lot of public policy prior to the United States entry into World War II. Uh, and then for a while, uh, and certainly during my early childhood, there was a more international consensus uh, among the political parties in the United States about uh, the need for the United States to be involved on the international stage. Um, there, I, I'm, I'm not uncritical of that. I think a lot of people, it's, it's perfectly appropriate to be skeptical about aspects of that. But there was a consensus. So if you were a Republican or a Democrat, it didn't matter. You believed that the United States should be involved. And now I think... Uh, and even, uh, you know, the conservative icon, Ronald Reagan, who, who's honored at this very hotel that we're in a weird way uh, where we're sitting, um, uh, was an internationalist. He believed in uh, uh, the importance of the United States being involved uh, with, uh, with other countries. So now the idea of turning inward and kind of the isolationist uh, uh, Charles Lindbergh you know, America first uh, 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 philosophy seems very strange. Uh, and it seems uh, counterproductive, even destructive. I think he's, and you don't just see that in the United States. Of course, we've seen it in the United Kingdom with uh, Brexit and with the efforts, the painful, uh, unproductive efforts to try to negotiate uh, exit from the European Union. Uh, so, so we've seen, you know, we, we, we've seen these things happen, and I think they reflect. Uh, because they're all over the world, I think they reflect the fact that the pace of change is very rapid, that there are a lot of things that are bigger than us that are affecting the way we live, like global, like climate change, global warming, uh, like new technologies that connect us in new ways. Uh, nothing is like what it was when we were kids, and, and nothing will be the same for our kids when they're older. 
uh, and we have to think about that. Uh, and so, but I think that's a lot of free-floating anxiety that is reflected in these political uh, uprisings. Well, we're looking for something to blame, I suppose, for, for things going wrong, and whether that's immigrants or whether it's social media. This is a, a topic I know you're interested in, too, that right. we're, we're looking for something to blame, and politics is being destroyed by Twitter, Right. apparently. Right. So, so there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of concern about social media platforms. Uh, uh, you know, they are more pervasive now. We, we have the first uh, president of the United States who essentially uh, his primary public outreach, uh, his primary way of connecting to voters isn't even rallies, although he likes to do rallies. Uh, it's, uh, it's Twitter. Uh, and I, I understand why I'm a Twitter user too. I understand why he's why he finds it addictive and why he finds it useful to sound out his ideas. But when you're the president of the United States and you speak, it has a different impact than when you're me and you speak. I mean, me, for example, I have to be funny, uh, <laughs> and I also have to be on point. And and the president, I think, has not does not feel the same sense of obligation to the t- Twitter audience. No, they're, they're, they're uh, oh, I, I don't even know how to put that. Um, and and he's, he doesn't do comedy. He- no, it's not his best thing. So I think that when he did the correspondence, was it, no, it was, maybe it was a different dinner. It was, the, uh, it was another political dinner in the United States. Uh, it's typically a bipartisan dinner, and he did a comedy routine. It was not great. Uh, this is not to say that his lines would not have played well at one of the many, many, many rallies that he holds on a routine basis, maybe the lines would have gone great. Uh, but he's, you know, the, uh, I, I think one of the things that, uh, if I had a criticism of Twitter, I think the move from 140 characters to 280 characters deprived us all of a necessarily uh, healthy discipline when we put out our public messages. I got really good at writing complete sentences, 140 characters, uh, and I, I now 280. It feels like I'm playing tennis with a net down. <laughs> I must admit, I, I do miss that discipline, that 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 sense of creating uh, a haiku almost. Well, that's right. Negative. I know that's right. Haiku is art. You know, trying to get a haiku to work is takes a lot of thought, and and we're better off for it generally. Do you call yourself a libertarian? Uh, that's a great question. So I, I would say I've been asked this because I, I, I have uh, uh, I make common cause with uh, libertarian activists in a lot of different contexts. But the, the real answer is that uh, I have uh, I there are parts of me that are strongly progressive. I grew up in a Democratic family, a Democratic Party family. Uh, there are parts of me that are strongly libertarian because I believe in fundamental rights in a way that libertarians, you know, I know how to talk libertarian talk. Uh, and I, I have a conservative temperament in, in other respects because I like it when people uh, look at the institutions that we uh, find or add something to our social value and try to preserve them. So there's a, a conservative impulse there too. So, so now that I am 62 years old and not going to vote in that many more elections, uh, I, I, I don't really think about trying to push one party or the other or one political stripe or the other. I think about looking at the problem right in front of me and figuring out what's the best fix for that. You've been looking at internet culture, of course, since there was such a thing. Libertarianism's taken on a bit of a different meaning there, I think. So, so one of the things, sure. So, uh, 
you know, one of the things that I think we've all seen, and I, I, I think anybody who's ever been on the Internet who's uh, read a, a, a newspaper or magazine website has seen, is that the comments areas are often very toxic if they're not moderated. Uh, people show up just to say awful things, uh, and, and, and that impulse obviously is a destructive impulse. I mean, I think that uh, some speakers say we're just doing it for the lulls, uh, that's really a bad attitude. That's like saying I'm at a party and I just threw bottles into the window for the laws. No, just don't do that at parties. You should not be at the party. You should go home. Um, and uh, I, I, that's that's troubling. Uh, but off the other hand, we're still really early into the social media transformation of society. We're very early into the Internet transformation of society and so it's really easy in the early years and we're still there to have to panic about a new medium we panicked every every developed culture had some panic about television every uh, developed uh, 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 culture had panic about the movies had panic about radio uh, and uh, the impulse there is to regulate uh, is to ex is extreme regulation almost always in response to that and, and, and that's probably not the right answer especially when we have a medium that is uh, fundamentally uh, 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 democratic and empowering for individual speakers in a way that we've never seen before I think that's an exciting moment but democracy's bumpy democracies can be traumatic uh, we have to learn to tolerate really strident and dissonant voices even if we also need to maintain a certain amount of uh, public order and harmony now, you're a great uh, fan, I suppose, of the First Amendment, the United States Constitution, freedom of speech. Yeah, necessarily, I'm a big fan of the First Amendment. Uh, necessarily? Uh, necessarily, well, because I can't shut up. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm for anything that supports me uh, talking in the long run on sentences that I'm now filling your podcast with. Uh, but that said, uh, you know... I think that the developed democracies in the world have, have share a commitment to freedom of speech, but the United States did it in a very categorical way, in ways that not every other country or every other culture agrees with. Uh, and uh, you know, now we're trying to sort of uh, 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 think about world culture, think about what freedom of speech means in, a, in, in when the te when technology empowers speakers to reach mass audiences. That is a new problem. Uh, it is it is a problem that I hope we we resolve on the side of mostly empowering people rather than shutting them up. Turning to Australian matters, you've been paying a lot of attention to Australia lately, uh, as I think someone should. Uh, right. I'll start with my health record. That's that's very much a live issue right now. Right. So my health record. Um, is, uh, is a story that I, I wanted to write something. I, I have a job where I have, to, I have to write about interesting things from time to time, and somehow... In, in theory, I'm meant to do that too, but I don't know how successful I am. And so what had happened was I saw the... I guess I saw on Twitter and elsewhere, I have some friends uh, down under, uh, and, uh, I, and I was seeing little peeps about my health record. And as I looked into it, I realized that, at least in my view, this story had not been adequately covered. I mean, I thought that it was, 
you know, different journalists were doing different pieces of it, and some of them were doing really good journalism. But but the difficulty I had, which troubled me as a as a journalist, was that nobody had put it together. Nobody had sort of put together a, 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 a primer of what exactly you needed to know about my health record. And so I said, well, I'll just spend a couple of days and research my health record uh, and, and write something about it because it's interesting. Um, and uh, my Im- initial impression was that the justification for my health record was hard to find. I found that the case for my health record really hadn't been made. And I knew enough about uh, healthcare administration to be doubtful whether it was that useful. I wasn't clear that it was useful, but I figured, well, if I dig into this, I'll find out where it came from and what it's re- what the reason for my health record really is. Uh, what I found was uh, that it did not take a couple of days. I, I told my editor uh, at Slate, I'm going to take you know a week maybe to do this, and it ended up taking all, essentially all of end of July all the way through August to figure out, to dig deep, not just into my uh, health record, but to the political environment in Australia that some, you know, in many ways informs a lot of the decision-making. Uh, I'm, I'm one of those uh, uh, American journalists who, when he, he starts writing about uh, government or politics or law in another country, is very paranoid about getting stuff wrong. So I actually looked really hard you know i had to you know i had to study the whole history of uh, medicare in australia and i learned a whole lot most of which i did not write down but i needed to know it to make sure that what i did write down came out right and so i wrote a long piece in slate about my health uh health record and if you want and if you want the tldr version of it it's don't sign up opt out this is my you know if you forget and everything else i've said here just opt out you know you can opt in later but you need to opt out now before november 15th (laughs) (laughs) okay that's that's clear you've got the date in your head that's excellent why opt out why opt out because it's not clear that it's going to help your health and it's clear that if you ever want to opt out later after november 15th it's going to be very hard it's even been very hard for people who you know before november 15th who have any kind of my health record to opt out uh, the benefits are not clear it seems to be uh it seems to be on the one hand it seems to be billions of australian dollars spent for nothing really useful uh, and on the other hand, it seems very privacy invasive. So I think that if you, if you don't want anyone associated with any healthcare organization you ever connect to or with government generally, uh, uh, looking at your health records over some long period of time, you ought to opt out now. If you, you, you have freedom to change your mind down the road, but you ought to at least opt, now, uh, opt out now. And the second thing I would say on top of that is that I think the government has done a very poor job of justifying uh, my health record. It seems to be the case that there, you know, now, at least in the last uh, couple of months of the window for opt out, it seems that uh, that uh, the 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 incumbent uh, government has been trying to sort of propagandize for my health record. But honestly, you know, from a, from a, from my perspective, the, even the best case stories of my health record are kind of lame. I mean, they're just, you know, 
I, I can imagine, you know, if, if everybody had to carry around a shopping cart full of their health records for every visit to the doctor, then you might have a case. But that doesn't seem to be a problem for most Australians. We also have a wonderful thing in Parliament at the moment, the Assistance and Access Bill, the anti-encryption legislation in Australia, which is, well, to set the scene, I suppose, is based on and extended from the British law, which was called the Snoopers Charter informally. Now, I know you've read this piece of legislation as well. Right. So, so Australia, Australia, you know, the government actually is aware that if they set out right what they really want, that you wouldn't like it. Uh, and so what they do is they have mushed it up a little bit by saying, uh, we're not going to mandate stuff. We're not going to man- require Apple or Samsung to build in insecurity, except that we maybe will. So, so if you read through the legislation, you find that the exceptions uh, 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 eat, eat the rule, eat the declared good intent. And the fact is really this, which is that for almost all of human history, it's been impossible for governments or police agencies to know everything that was happening with you privately. Uh, if you wanted to have a private converse, conversation with your, your mate, you would just walk down the road and be out of earshot and you could have a private conversation. And if you didn't want to be seen talking to them, you could walk o- around the bend of the road so you were not visible. But now, because so much of our lives is digital and online, uh, that is a real treasure trove, uh, potentially, not just for police agencies, but also for any government administrative agency, for intelligence agencies. And they want to build that snooper ability into your devices. And that seems inhumane, wrong, anti-democratic. Uh, the nature of democracies is that they rely on the idea of limits to what government can do. And you can't abandon that. You have to stick with that, even if it's uncomfortable because you can't capture every bad guy because you can break into his iPhone. This brings us very nicely to what is going to be the final question. Uh, Supporters of this podcast occasionally pay to have a trigger word thrown into the conversation. And uh, Andrew Groom chose this word uh, knowing that I was going to be here in Washington, D.C., in in the America, as we call it. But I'm going to use it in this podcast. Freedom. When I think about freedom, I try to think not about a political idea. I think not a, f- first and foremost about a political idea or not even about my own freedom of speech. I think the fact is that we are on earth for a limited amount of time and we need to be able to be as fully human as we can be. Uh, we now have developed a lot of uh, tools and a lot of technologies and a lot of opportunities for us to learn more and know more and, 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 and be able to do more. And I think freedom, if anything, means that. So when I look at what I want in the society that I live in, I want to see a society that lets individuals have freedom. Mike Godwin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
that's all the edict for now. If you'd like to support this and uh, other dodgy ventures, please empty your wallet at stilgarian.com slash tip. That's stilgarian.com slash tip. The next episode will be soon, very soon. Listen out for a promo next week. Until then, I'm Stilgarian. Have a good one. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.